So this morning I'm going to be talking in the, in, in, in the main about marriage, um, singleness, and um, friendship. And it, I think it's a little bit of a setup, actually, if I can be honest, because <laughs> that's very kind of what you said about being wise. These are areas where, honestly, I am very underqualified to talk about. And they're areas which are really messy. Um, I've been single. I've been celibate. I've been married. I am still married. I just point that out <laughs> in case I do that. And it's, it's quite a sort of messy area. And it's, it's something where... You know, I come up here and, you know, you've heard of imposter syndrome. I feel kind of an imposter. You know, sometimes when you're talking about an abstract thing, it's, it's okay. But when you're talking about things which the nitty-gritty of relationships, nitty-gritty of being a Christian, it's very easy to suddenly start looking at yourself and going, wow, why am I qualified? But the joy about Proverbs, the whole series is about Proverbs, is Proverbs is based on what wise men and their counsel said. And... Um, I'm going to be relying on, I'll be talking a little bit more about what I'm going to be relying on to do that. Bizarrely enough, when I was preparing this, I just got, I'm not sure about any of you who got into ChatGBT. Does anyone know about ChatGBT? All the youth do. The older guys think it's a dating app. It's not. Um, ChatGBT, phenomenal. It really was. And then I thought, well, the easiest thing to do is just type in the sermon and let it write it out. Uh, but then I thought probably Benice and everyone else has already done that and are cross-checking it like the school examiners, you know, and cheating. So I didn't do that. But it's actually really interesting. What was quite interesting, because as an AI product, the, the core stuff it gave was actually incredibly profound. And, you know, you hear about the AI saying, I want to kill your, you know, all those weird things they're worried about going. But if this one's saved, it's brilliant because it actually, obviously, it's a learning algorithm. But maybe if we type in more lessons and sermons, the AI will become spirit-filled. Who knows? But that's, I don't know about the theology of that, okay? But all I was saying, it was, it was quite phenomenal. Now, um, the background Proverbs, as you know, it's about advice about how to do life and the, the Christian skill of living. And it's written by three people at least, Solomon being one of them, and there's a few other people. Solomon obviously wrote Ecclesiastes as well. Um, and it's a collection of moral sayings, pithy sayings and counsels, which form this one of the canons of um, Judeo-Christian um, uh, Old Testament. And it says in Proverbs 24, 23, it's the sayings of the wise. By the way, when these come up... Um, I want to th shout out to Bob because every time I've spoken, we are given until Thursday morning to hand in our notes, and Bob knows that he gets my notes at five minutes to ten. Okay, so Bob, you're an unsung hero, and I just want to thank you for that and apologize in public for that. Okay. <laughs> um, and now when we talk about singleness, I'll be gentle on you guys on that one as well. Um, so what I was going to do initially, I was going to look at sort of Proverbs and just go through the sort of the parallelisms, the metaphors, the allegories, all those things which one would do when you're looking at Proverbs. Um, but then as I was starting to prepare it and look at it, and you start looking at the sort of the Greek words, and you look at the commentaries and expositions on all this and the cross-references, it seemed incredibly dry to me. Because, of, of course, Proverbs is written in a cultural context. Um, it's written in a time and a place. There's some absolute truths in it. There's some temporal truths in it. And I just felt that God was like, Chris, marriage, singleness, and friendship is so messy. It's so real. Let's try and make it more contemporary in terms of what you're talking about. So I'm going to go a little bit left field, a little bit off-piste. And what I'm doing is looking at what's in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, because also looking at it through the eyes of the New Covenant is really important, those three areas when you're talking about relationships. But also, you know what, and this is an, another amazing thing which I'm trying now, is, of course, Proverbs are the pithy sayings of the wise. We have wise, anointed, apostolic, ap you know what I'm trying to say, um, people who are there, pastors of churches. And the joy of social media, if we use it correctly, actually, a lot of those reels, I'm not sure when you go on to Instagram and um, so forth. I say Instagram because I have no idea how TikTok works, but Instagram I do. And it sends you those reels. Actually, a lot of those reels, especially when it comes to Christian teaching, are modern-day proverbs. Yeah, because if they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Word, and somebody who's anointed has put them out there, they're modern proverbs. 
So I've actually relied a lot on those. And I just want to just say, if you recognize things, I'm not going to every time I've said something which came from somebody, give them the credit, because I, I generally don't believe there's a trademark or an IP attached to God's word. But I will give thanks to amazing people like J. John, Mike Piliarchi, um, these some of these amazing people who are out there, Rich Wilkinson. And you go there and you suddenly just start hearing some of the wisdom that God's inspired in, the, in these areas of relationships. I'm not going to mot- I'm not going to dwell on... A lot of the things which you'd expect in a talk like this, we've all done hundreds of talks on dating. You know, if you're a teenager or a young guy, you've been to talks on dating. Uh, Marriage, there's the marriage course. I'm not going to be talking about how to have an amazing marriage. Um, I'm going to be looking at, well, you'll see where I'm going to go for there. But the Proverbs, the basis of it, and the end of Ecclesiastic is the fear of the Lord, okay, which is the beginning of all knowledge or wisdom. Um, and Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes says, Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. And Timothy Keller talks about what it is to fear God. And the reason I'm talking about this very briefly at the beginning, because it drives our motivation, okay? Because some people have different fears of, um, idea of what fear of God is. They think fear of God is something to be frightened about. You're petrified. He's going to get out the big slipper. He's going to get out the fimbo. He's going to chopper you, and that's why you do it, okay? But actually, Timothy Keller talks about how fear is a sense of awe and wonder about a person. When you look at it in the original, it's a sense of awe and wonder. And because of that awe and wonder, we, we are then motivated to do things. And it's not about being frightened. And you're afra- what you're afraid of is offending that person's awe and wonder. And I think that really is a subtle difference because the motivation goes from being something incredibly negative to something incredibly positive. And if we fear the Lord, the great thing about it, of course, is we won't then become enslaved to other things, and also we won't be frightened of anything else. And he talks about this in Psalm 130, and I'll just read it. If you, Lord, kept a record of our sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. And what comes out of this is the more you're forgiven and the more you experience that incredibly costly grace of Christ, the more of the Lord you will experience. And it also increasingly fills you with an awe of his love. So why are we talking about these three areas, marriage, faithfulness, and singleness? Firstly, we all know marriage is hugely under attack at the moment. It's um, Divorce rates are up. I can't remember the stats now. It depends on your country. But in most countries now, the majority of people don't believe in marriage. They want to live together. Uh, people want to be paleo. I won't even go into the names, but there's poly polyamorous, thank you. It doesn't mean you are doing that. It just means you're better informed than I am. Um, polyamorous. And also, the other one I saw the other day was about throuples, where you have three people now in a relationship. In a, you know, so there's all this sort of nonsense going on in marriage. Um, and of course, divorce, as we know, is the highest it's ever been, and even more so in the church. You know, we, In the old days, it was them and us. Now, the church is in that area as well. And then in singleness, we've got to a stage of singleness where it's so denigrated if you're single. Um, You're constantly bombarded by everything is sexualized, and you're kind of a half a person if you're still single. I mean, Daniela and I went out for dinner two nights ago at this restaurant, and the the lady sat next to us started talking to us. And turns out, she turns out to be a um, dating counselor or something along those lines. And... um, and I asked her, well, what do you do? And she was like, well, actually, I, I help people obviously get into relationships. And I said, what's your sort of demographic? And she says, well, my demographic is people who are 40. And can you imagine, they're still virgins. And so I just want to make sure, and she said this is her words, I just want to make sure they get laid. And I was like, okay, so what about people who are, want to be celibate? Oh, well, they're not good for my business. And she literally said that. And we were just like, oh, my gosh, this is the countercultural world that we're living in. And then, of course, we talk about friendship. And there we've come into a society with Facebook and social media where we've lost the ability of maintaining and making, making and maintaining deep and profound friendships. And, of course, loneliness, as we know, is one of the biggest scourges of our, scourges of our generation. And it's a very, very lonely generation. So that's the context as to why it's really important, because, of course, it's completely at biblical odds that we are one family here to encourage, to serve, and to help each other. Um, A little bit about me, as I said, I'm completely unqualified to do this. I was... I got married very late in the day. I'm not sure the Kenyans know Charles and John Joe. I was at that level. The door was just closing, and I did a sliding tackle, and by the grace of God, I met Daniel and got married. Um, And so that was my context. But also when I was single, I was 
really not in a place where I honored God in my singleness. And I would love to have said, oh, well, I wasn't saved then. You know, I got saved and suddenly became this amazing person. I was saved, but I wasn't walking in the light in that area. And so I think there's a context there that maybe in the sort of divine wisdom, I'm giving it because I know both sides of the story. Okay, I'm not standing up here saying I, I'm this amazing person who, who's done it well. And even when I reflect on my marriage, I just can see so many areas where I need to improve. And in fact, as I was preparing this, it was really in my heart that this was a sermon to myself. And I think that's kind of why God did it. He said, well, actually, this is the only way I'm going to get you to read up about this is to actually give a sermon on this. Um, and I, there's this picture we have um, of this woman who is really distraught and messy and crying and in a really horrible place. And somebody she loves comes up to her and just hugs her, doesn't say anything, and just opens a can of baked beans and covers himself in baked beans just to say, I'm with you. We're messy together. And that's kind of where we are together on this. Now, the starting point, of course, is the eternal relationship. We know the Trinity was there in purpose, has been there from the beginning, this wonderful relationship between God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it existed before time, and of course is the ultimate example of what relationship's about. But it points to the greatest verse in the Bible, I think, which is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever might believe in Him might not perish but have eternal life. And the whole point being that we were designed to have a relationship with God, that He loved us before we were born. Isn't that amazing? Before the earth was even formed, before the, we were even formed, he, was, he knew he was going to create us because he wanted to love us. He had you and I in mind. And the reason I talk about this is because if we know what the foundation is of where we stand with the Almighty, it sets us up really well of where we're going to stand with other people. And that word they use in the Bible, it says about he's so loved us. It's, it's what's known as an adverb of intensity. It's like so loved us. It's like somebody says, I like you. It's quite good. But if somebody says, I so like you, you just kind of sit up. And it's that sort of degree of intensity where God said, I so loved you. It's extravagant. It's lavish. Um, and I think that is a wonderful point for us and um, a great place for us to start. Somebody tells this wonderful story about this guy who he works at this factory, end of every day, five o'clock, he leaves the factory, and he's pushing, an, he's pushing in a, a sort of wheelbarrow, and in the wheelbarrow is a little box, and the security guard stops him and says, hello, um, what have you got in there? The guy opens the box up, and it's just it's sawdust, and he goes, what are you doing with the sawdust? He says, well, I just need it. I use it at home. Okay, we can have it. And every day, the security guy stops him because he thinks he's stealing something. He says, what's in the box? And he goes, it's, it's just sawdust. Open it up, opens it up, it's sawdust. And this goes on for days. And the security guard eventually stops and says, listen, I know you're stealing something. If you tell me what it is, I won't tell the boss, okay? Just tell me what it is because it's really frustrating. And the guy says, I'm stealing wheelbarrows, okay? <laughs> and the point is this, that sometimes we get so absorbed in the small stuff or stuff that's not important that we forget the big stuff. And I want us, if nothing else today, just to remember whether we are single, whether we're widowed, whether we're divorced, whether we're dating, whether we're committed to a life of celibacy, whether we're married, whatever it is, the big stuff is that Jesus died for you and your relationship with him is of the utmost and most profound value, which trumps everything else, okay? Just, if that's the only thing you take away from it, just let's go with that for today. And remember, in that, our aim, as it sets out in Mark 12, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your body, with all your mind. And the second command, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So that is the big picture. And out of that will come everything else. Now, I'm going to talk briefly about marriage. First of all, it's really hard to do it when your spouse is in the room, because I'm not sure if you've ever done a talk where your boss slightly walks into the back of the room and starts taking notes, and every now and then just looks up when you say something. So it's a bit like that now. So just bear with me. Um, but you, the context is that with marriage, um, I'm not going to discuss how to have a great marriage. Go to the marriage course, please. It's an amazing resource, and it goes into the nitty-gritty and gives you time as a couple to work on your marriage. But... Um, we know the biblical background of marriage. It was there in the beginning in, in Genesis when God said it was not good to be alone. And it's there at the end of the Bible when Christ comes back for his bride. And of course, in the middle, there's huge amounts on it, particularly in Ephesians where Paul gives us his thoughts on marriage and on singleness. Um, 
I would just say for people who are looking at that, you don't get married for peace, okay? That's just one thing I'll just start off with, because a lot of people say you get married for peace. I don't mean in a negative way, but in marriage, there is a mirror that is created, okay? And that mirror is part of what you're seeing, because when you become one. And so, when you're single and things don't, you don't like things and things don't work out, you're not happy with yourself, you go to the gym, you go to the pub or whatever it is. But in marriage, you have this mirror opposite you, okay, which is God's way of seeing yourself in the other person. And it's challenging. And it starts to make you break things and it breaks things. And it's painful, but it's part of the change that is necessary. And of course, unlike the world who thinks marriage is there purely to be happy, it's not. Okay? It's a byproduct of it. Marriage is there to be holy. Okay, two very distinct things. And again, on this thing, I, as I said, I'm not qualified to talk about it. I've only been married, I think, nearly eight years now. There's a lot of wonderful, wise people here who've been married for eons, literally. Go and speak to them. Pick their brains. Ask them the ups, the downs. Get their counsel and advice for it. But these are just some of the things which I've sort of pulled out from this on this. Um, but just make sure you are aware that you are dealing with God's daughter or son, and they, they, they deserve the very best of me. And ensure that you each love God more than you love each other. Accept that you're fighting way beyond your weight. If you look at your partner and go, wow, I am so incredibly lucky. How did I end up with that? It's a good starting point. And recognize how awesome they are to such an extent that they're an amazing gift that you want to share with everybody. And then, of course, being prepared to die to self every day, and I'll come on to that and be a living sacrifice. I mean, I want to just quote this person who's a great theologian, um, Chris Rock, okay. <laughs> now, Chris Rock talks about, and bizarrely enough, he, he's talking about marriage, and he, he's talking from a very Christian point of view, bizarrely enough, and he says, listen, it's like being in a band, okay? You know, he says we're in the service industry, we're in a band, we have to, you know, someday you're the lead singer and do it well, but other day you might be the guy playing the tambourine, okay? And just do that well, because no one likes a grumpy, <laughs> a grumpy tambourine player. And the role that we have these little roles that God gives us, and just to do them in an honoring way, because we become one. And there's this whole idea, uh, and T.D. Jakes talks about, where these sort of ice cubes, which are hard and difficult and solid, and as we get married, we start to melt and melt and melt until we become this wonderful bit of water and we become one. But that takes time and it's a softening process. And being aware of the fact that when we say I do at the altar, it is based on the fact of what we know of that person. This is something Tim Ross talks about. It's something we know about that person. But the I do is actually based on the things we don't know about the person that we're committing to honor and work through for the rest of our marriage, okay? So you're saying I do to the things you don't know. Because when you get married, you're getting married to this amazing person you know. And then as you get married, you see there's all these things you didn't know. But that commitment of I do is for those unknowns and what you're willing to, and a commitment that you're going to walk along that side with them. And remember, as you go along, just to be aware of the fact that marriage and its ups and downs, God has more vested in your marriage than you do. Okay? It's more important to God than it is even to you. And, you know, we all know couples who have not spoken to each other for years and years and years. Michelle Obama was talking the other day about how she hadn't spoken to, she didn't like her husband for 10 years, um, you know, when they first got married. But how God can redeem and reconcile those marriages. And I think in those places, you look at... Um, when things are broken, if something is broken, you have this situation where it's broken. If it's broken, fine, you can be stuck together. But also, if it's shattered, completely shattered, there's actually something very beautiful that can come from that if we allow God to reconcile it. Because actually a mosaic or what the Japanese do with that little bit of gold when they create the cracks is something beautiful from it. And for us to move away from this world of view of immaturity that if things don't work, we put it back on the shelf um, we criticize our, our wife or our partner because we're also aware of the fact that we criticize ourselves in that process because we're one in, in that. And this other thing that kept on coming out was this idea, well, and it's the biggest reason for divorce now, is people saying we're not compatible. Okay, we're not compatible. That's just a term made up by divorce lawyers. Okay? No one is compatible. We're all different. Okay? If you say I'm going to go and find my perfect fit, that person doesn't exist. 
We arrive in marriage knowing that we're not compatible and no one is like one. No one is like you. But we arrive there also being prepared to allow God to change us and for us to intentionally change ourselves to fit our partner and to move away from that consumer sort of cancel culture. And just, I'm just talking about the negatives now before I go into the positives. But also the other thing is about um, my partner not being everything I wanted it to be. You know, and sometimes people live in resentment. My partner's never become that. But also, I think you have to be aware of the fact that God sometimes does not give you your perfect partner for that very reason. In fact, he never will do. Because how will you learn what unconditional love is, the unconditional love spoken in 1 Corinthians 13, if you have this perfect partner? Yeah, I, I, I think there's probably a few people who are divorced. On, I just will just bring this in just very quickly. If you're divorced, please, there is no judgment here on that. Just to know that people are aware of the guilt you have, the pain, the humiliation, but also to know that your past is not your future, yeah? And that's something I'd really like to encourage you on. And we believe in a God of new mercies. And this is something we'll talk about at the end, who redeems and restores and still has plans for your future. So we'll come on. I just want to encourage you, because some people might say, well, this is not for me. But if you're divorced, honestly, we believe in a God of hope on that. I just want to just touch on singleness very briefly. And this is something which I know single people in the church would love me to say. Being single is not a consolation prize, okay? It's not an also-ran. There is a lot of people who, when you're a single person in a Christian community, the first thing they ask before they even know you're single is, how are your kids? And you're like, well, I don't have kids. Then they say, oh, sorry, how's your, how's your wife? I'm not married. And, oh, well, I'm going to put you on my prayer list, okay? I mean... That is the most patronizing thing, unless somebody's asked you to do it, because actually what we forget, the historical context was in the Bible, singleness, and Paul goes into great detail, was elevated higher and beyond marriage. It's only in our modern society where we flipped it around where it's now considered as a B thing, okay? And of course, you look at Paul and all he managed to achieve and the books he wrote, but listen, the ultimate kicker is Jesus was single, Okay? So please, let's just change our, our mindset when we deal with single people that um, it's this sort of also-ran type place. You know, one of the joys, and it talks about it in the Bible, about why singleness, and this is why Paul talks about it in Ephesians 7, is amazing. Because if you're by yourself, you don't have the concerns of being married. Yeah, You don't have to. I mean, this morning I had a classic case. I was running late. And, you know, in the old days when I was single, that'd be fine. I'd have a coffee. I'd reread my notes, etc. I had to go and wipe somebody's bottom before I came here, okay? And then I shaved myself. And then usually, and this is the other side of it, usually Daniela checks my hair to see if it's been cut properly. There's no one to do that. So there's both sides to it. But the joy about being single is that you have time for yourself. You have all these resources which are for other people. And it gives you a freedom in terms of your resources, your time. And you can use those for the good or for the bad, it allows you to take risky decisions in serving the kingdom, some things that married couples can't do because they have commitments to family. And of course, it gives you space for personal development and maturity and, and um, in a way that sometimes with couples we can't have. Um, you know, I've got godchildren coming out of my ears. I think I've got about 11 or something. And it's just like, this is one of the great things about being single is that you can be so many things to, to Christian families. Okay, I was slightly bitter because my brother's godfather was a sort of zillionaire who took him on amazing trips, and mine was somebody who my father said, well, he's a missionary, but he prays for you. And I was slightly bitter about that, um, but I'm not now, and I'm thankful for that. But, you know, being a godparent, being a friend to families is amazing. But there's two mistakes that singles often make, okay? One is that I'm not complete if I'm, mar if I'm not married, all right? And I think that is just something is where you start making a God out of marriage. And you say, you know, if I get married, all my securities, my longings, etc., will go. Um, that's not, that's obviously wrong. Live the life that Christ has called to you now and in the moment now. The other point is when you suddenly say, well, I'm so free, I can do whatever I like. You know, and it's a bit like when Daniela and the kids go traveling and I'm left at home and I can watch Netflix, I can pizza, I can eat pizza, I don't have to put the loose seat down, I get my buddies around, I can have a beer when I want, you know. And you said, that's the joy about being single. It's the most selfish way to look at things, yeah? 
Because God didn't create that space for you to be single, to indulge yourself. And, you know, I think it's something where you just look at the Bible verses that talk about it. I mean, when it talks about, for me to live is Christ again in Philippians. When it talks about our old self was crucified with him in Romans 6. Um, and Jesus is talking about denying ourselves. So let's just put those in context. Don't put marriage on an altar if you're single. God's got a lot more for you, whether it's for that season or for a lifetime, that's for you and him to work out. And on the other hand, don't use your opportunity to be single as a sort of self-grandizing lifestyle just for yourself. Because God taught us through Jesus, and we'll come on to what he taught us through Jesus, what it meant to be single and the sacrifice that is about that. I mean, one of the joys, again, opening up to a house as a single person, one of the great joys I had when I was single is my house is like a hotel. People could come and go. I give people keys. They could stay, help themselves to food. Of course, just warning, don't invite Australians because they never leave. Um, you know, I had an Australian came and stayed with me in London, and like three months later, he was still eating my food in my fridge. Okay, but um, apologies to Australians on that one. But you know, the idea is that you have this freedom as a single person to do things that married couples cannot. And um, of course, there's a downside, which is the loneliness, and that is something which us, we all as a church, should be supporting from supporting each other about. But do remember that God is no man's debtor. So if you are single, he doesn't, he'll never owe you. You're always going to trump up better than what you think you would have had in that thing. And in it all, to remember that we all belong together and we invest in each other. He talks about in Romans 12, 5, it says, So in Christ, though many... We in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the other. And that's what I, one of the things I want us to take away, is that whether you're married or single, we belong to each other. And I would encourage you as a single person, abuse our friendships as marriage, married couples. Come and stay. Overstay your welcome. Be that really annoying godfather who wants to liberate the oppressed children who can't watch TV and have chocolate. You know, okay, within boundaries. But just, you know, there is a beautiful dynamic there that Christ wants us to represent as we interact as married and singles. And be countercultural. Be, you know, walk to a different drum because we all need each other. Now, if you're in that stage of transitioning across out of, you know, in, and you're starting to date and you feel that you're not being called to be celibate for life, but you're now in a place where you want to start dating, just a couple of things, a couple of pointers for you. And again, I said uh, most of you have done dating talks up to your eyeballs, so I don't want to rehash that. But just make sure you end up with somebody who loves you more, who, who loves God more than he loves you or she. They have a heart to serve. They have character and a beautiful soul. Um, make sure you can trust each other, honor each other. Don't put yourself under pressure, okay? Um, focus on forming friendships. Keep your boundaries healthy. And also one thing I find really helpful is just don't cut corners and tell them that when you first start. Tell them, listen, I've done mistakes before and I'm not going to cut corners in this relationship. Tell them straight up front. They can make a call whether you want to be with them. And just remember, just enjoy that safari. You know, the safari is the destination. But be aware of the fact that the modern world has made dating like a rehearsal for divorces. You don't like it, you put it back on the shelf. You don't like it, you put it back on the shelf. And you create this reflex, or you can create this reflex, which is very hard to undo, okay? And, you know, do, talk to me about that later on the side if you'd like to. And I'm not going to talk about the sex before marriage. I think that's something, just come and talk to me. But it's just something which every person who's a Christian married will give you advice as to why not to do it. And I won't go into the details of it now, but there's a reason why God asks us to wait. Now, in that process as you're waiting, I'd encourage you to start asking God and praying for your future spouse so that God prepares and protects them and also does the same for you. And also pray for God to do that work in you that you can become that attractive person for whom God has prepared, has prepared you for somebody else. And of course, if it doesn't work out, then that's great because you've, if you've done it prayerfully, then you're aware of the fact that it's either the wrong person, it's not the right time or place, or God's still got a work in you to do. And then these are some of the reasons why it hasn't worked out, and these are some things to look at. I won't go into all of them, but it's basically, the Bible talks about being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians. Your feelings aren't reciprocated in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, you're pulling away from Jesus. They're pulling away from Jesus rather than drawing you closer. 
you're having sexual sin, but you're not even beginning to repent about it. It's like, well, it's okay. Well, it doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Another thing which I found really helpful when I was single was running things past my friends, okay? Because they know you better than you better. So I, w- I wouldn't say necessary family. It depends on your relationship with family. I dated somebody who, who basically almost, family almost had a Confederate frag outside their front gate. So they were never going to be entirely enthused with their daughter dating me. But your friends know you. And your friends, I, there was a stag party, a friend of mine went to a stag, as a bachelor party, I guess. And at the end of the bachelor party, they're having dinner, and this mutual friend of ours asked somebody, asked the, his mate next door to you, are you really chuffed I'm marrying Sarah, whoever she was? And he said, no, nah, not really. And he says, well, what about you? And asked the guy next to him, he says, well, not really. And he, he banged the, the glass, and he asked the whole table, he says, guys, are you not excited for me to get married? And he had 10, 12 of his best mates there. Not one of them could say they were excited for him. Okay? That's the sort of friendship that you need who can then give you that counsel. And in that process you're waiting. Uh, sorry? He did get married eventually, but not to that person. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, sorry, I thought I was being heckled there for a minute. It was like, um, but also, you know, that process of waiting, you know, Wizard of Oz, as we go down the yellow brick ward, and you just take it, and you just follow it. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to just take the next step. Sometimes we're saying, God, I'm not going to go forward with any of these relationships until you tell me what's going to happen next. But what we realize as Christians is as we step out in faith, and faster we go, the steps come quicker and quicker. Because we know that His ways are not our ways. Okay, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And just be prepared to just do whatever step God is calling you to do um, as you walk forward in that, uh, in that sort of dating way. So I know I'm sort of talking to different demographics here, but this is particularly, obviously, for the people who are dating. It doesn't apply to people who are married. You're in that forever. Um, what happens in that process? As you meet this beautiful, cute person, okay, you are still walking towards Jesus, but you start walking a little bit closer towards them. You check, are they insecure in Christ? Are they secure in community? Are they planted in community? Um, do you like them? Do you enjoy them? Are you attracted to them? Um, could we see serving Jesus better together or apart? And if so, yeah, you grab their hand and you walk up the aisle, you walk past the aisle, and then you get to a point and say, yes, actually, you know what? Let's, do you want to glorify God with me? Let's exalt his name together. And that's when you know that's the time to get married. And one of the million-dollar questions people always ask me is like, Chris, having waited, you know, until you were 80 before you got married, how did you know that Daniela was the right person? And, of course, there's some prophetic signs that God shows some people. There's somebody in my old church who was called um, Sarah Cavallio, and um, she went off. She had been single for a long time. She went to Brazil and met this amazing person and uh, wasn't sure if that was who God wanted her to marry. And his name, um, sorry, she's called Sarah Cavallio now. But she came back and, wasn't, and was praying about it. And a friend sent her this verse out of the blue saying, you shall be called an oak of righteousness. And Cavallio was the name of the guy she was dating. Cavallio in Portuguese was the rock. Yeah? So that's quite a clear sign. You know, if you're dating somebody and God sends somebody with that particular name, not knowing who the person is, and she's now called Sarah Cavallo, Sarah the Oak, which was quite good. But for me, that didn't happen. But for every one of us here, there's a sense of peace. God speaks through the Spirit and gives you a sense of peace. Okay? So you can have as many signs as you want, but if you have unease in your body, in your heart, in your, in your soul, in your spirit-inspired soul about it, then I would encourage you not to do, um, go down that one. Now, celibacy. Celibacy is like the most unsexy thing the world talks about, doesn't want to talk about it, it humors it, indulges it. We're all called to be celibate, either for a celibate, either, I've got to be careful to say not a halibut, which is a fish, but a celibate, either for a season, okay, when we're single and we're dating, or we all know people who are called to be celibate for life. And some of the great heroes of faith have been celibate, as I I mentioned about Paul, but even more contemporary ones. And I think of so many people I know, um, my former vicar, Mike Pavliarchi, all these amazing people who are doing amazing things for the gospel because they have undertaken to be celibate for their life. And, you know, just a little fact there, the celibate idea is... As we say, the, the modern world is undermining it constantly. But there's a figure I saw the other day, which is if you arrive 
in marriage, and for the people who are temporarily celibate before they get married, you have an 80% chance of a happy marriage if you're a virgin. These are, these are um, interviews they did with you. If you've had more than five sexual partners when you arrive at marriage, that 80% drops to 30% chance of having a happy marriage. Of course, bring Jesus into the equation and he redeems all of that. But if you don't, that's what you're up against. And I think there's something beautiful about that old monastic way of life that we have begun to forget. And again, this applies to whether you're a widow. I think of my father, who after my mother died, you know, he was celibate for the rest of his life. But in that season, he was able to give more to the church and to Christ than he'd ever done previously because of what God created in that space of him being celibate. As I wrap up on the celibacy side, just one thing there that's really, I think, just worth looking at is remember when um, Peter was talking um, to Jesus and he was saying, listen, we've given up all of this. We've given up our homes. We've given up our fields. We've given up our possessions, our family to follow you. And we don't know his tone. We don't know whether it's a sort of a complaint, oh, we've given up all of this, or whether it's like, listen, we've given up all of that. What's next? You know, but the sense is that God's given us all these other possessions and families if you're called to celibacy. Every single person who you know is a Christian, that is your home. That's your family, their possessions, because we're called to share all of this. So please don't think when you make that call of giving that up, back to God being a debtor, you have access to all these other families around you. And I, that's something I want to come on to more in, in, in terms, well, just mention it now. As married Christian people, please open up our homes to single people. We are better and richer for single people being in our homes and our families, okay? Now, finally, I come and talk about friendship because, of course, both, whether you're single and celibate or whether you're celibate for the rest of your life or whether you're marriage, friendship is a common theme there. And, of course, the Bible talks in huge detail about friendships, and we see whether it's the friendship between David and Jonathan um, and, of course, some people nowadays start trying to say there was something funny there, but they forget that David actually had three wives, so it was very unlikely there was something funny there. But, you know, people try to even twist something as basic as that. Or whether it's Ruth and Naomi, you know, the one woman who wanted to spend time with her mother-in-law and loved it. Again, an amazing woman. Um, that was a joke. Um, but, you know, there's amazing friendships there. And in Proverbs, it, talks, it uses this word rear, which covers a lot of different types of friendship. There's the rear, which is the, the sort of friendship, you've, a legal adversary. And then there's the rear, which is right at the other end of the scale, is like a, a bosom buddy, somebody who's really close to your heart. And we need deep, meaningful friendships. The Bible talks about one, this is Proverbs 18, 24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a brother who sticks closer than a friend. And this is, of course, not just for singles, because in marriage, friendship is the basis of marriage. And I would encourage you just to, you know, as you work out friendships, um, we're, commend we're commanded to love one another by Jesus. And to get to that point where Abraham, who was called a friend of God, that is directly called a friend of God. Now, we become friends of God because of what Jesus did, and I'll come on to that. But it's something really profound about that friendship. And C.S. Lewis in Four Loves on Friendship talks about this. He says, that is the kingliness of friendship. We meet like sovereign princes of independent states, abroad on neutral ground, freed from our context. This love ignores not only our physical bodies, but that whole embodiment, which consists of our family, job, past, and connections. At home, besides being Peter or Jane, we also bear a general character, husband or wife, brother or sister, chief, colleague or subordinate. Not among friends. It is an affair of disentangled or stripped minds. Eros will have naked bodies, friendship, naked personalities. And that is just something I'd encourage us in as well, where even friendship is being sexualized. And he goes on to say, those who cannot conceive friendship as a substantive love but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, which is sexual love, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. And of course, the ultimate person who modeled friendship in the Bible was Jesus. And if we just read very quickly, John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. I mean, there's a whole sermon in that, but it's the idea of this perfectly modeled friendship. And what I love about it, the most profound thing to start off with, is the fact that he chose us. Just let that sink in. You know, Elion, the God most high, chose us. El Gabor, the mighty God, chose us. El Olam, the everlasting God, chose us. El Shaddai, the great almighty, chose us. Elohim, the creator, chose us. Yahweh chose us. The Messiah, the anointed one, chose us. That is an amazing place to start any form of relationships, that he chose us for that. And then he calls us friends. Jesus calls us a friend, and by extension, God calls us a friend. Not because of our Abrahamic link with God, but because of Jesus. And that he kept nothing from us. Isn't that amazing? He kept nothing from us, because he says that in that. And I, you know, I'm not sure if you know about love languages. Um, a guy called Chapman talks about love, different love languages we all have with each other. You know, whether it's um, physical affection, um, affirmation, service. You know, there's five of those love languages. Um, I've got a very simple love language is if you tell me you love me, yeah, that's okay. If you go and buy me a tool, a DIY tool, I'll follow you around the world for the rest of your life. Okay, that's my love language. We have different types of love language. But people forget that Jesus had a love language. Yeah? And it's there in verse, in, in, that, in, that, in what I read there. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. His love language is obedience. And that's where miracles happen. And that's, it's, it's, it's a joyful area, back to the thing about fearing the Lord right at the beginning. A sense of being obedient to him. And of course, ultimately, when we're talking modeling about the friendship of Jesus, is he models that ultimate thing of any friendship, which is laying down his life. And we know that Jesus had groups of friends. He had the 72. Um, he then had the 12. And then he had the three, Peter and then the wonderfully named sons of Zebedee, um, John and James. And then he also had, depending on how you look at it, one very close one, okay, which was either Peter or some say it was John, and then also had a very special relationship with Mary. But he was very selective. He had the 72, the 12, the three, and the one, okay. And he knew what it was to be intimate and to be vulnerable and to be in those friendships there. And we're not called to be friends with everybody. You know, we're called to love everybody, but not necessarily be friends with everybody. And so to be selective about that, I'm just going to talk a little bit about that. You know, when Jesus had those three, those are the three that he took to Gethsemane. Okay, he went down into the valley so they could see him. You know, they could see him when he was crying and sweating tears. They could hear him when he was crying out for the cup to be taken away from him. There were also the three who he actually took up into the hill when he was going away finally, when he was being transfigured. Those are the three. And there's a lot there in terms of the intimacy of those relationships. And I'd encourage you to look at that and to see how we can model that. And how do we get there, just from practical terms? One is prayer. I arrived at university, um, and I prayed very specifically. I was in a group of... Um, um, I was in the Christian Union initially, really inward-looking, quite boring people. And then I was also hanging around with really fun, cool people who weren't Christians. And I remember just praying really specifically, God, please, could you make my fun mates Christians? And then I'm sorted. And my, five, my four closest friends within a year all became Christians. So, that's a little bit of a lump there. <laughs> but, you know, it's an amazing thing he does because if we pray, he will honor that because he wants us to have these healthy relationships, okay? Obviously, use common sense. Invest in those friendships. And like Jesus said, you know, showed, be prepared to be vulnerable, okay? And that thing of the man of sorrows, Jesus showing all that side of him and making himself vulnerable. And yes, you'll get hurt. That's the nature of these things. And we're told in the Bible to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
I'm not sure if you've read The Velveteen Rabbit. It's all about this little rabbit in a, in a kid's playhouse who has his ears pulled off and his eyes pop out, this little rabbit, because he's been loved so much, and that's what happens. And keep it real. You know, Proverbs talk about the, the faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's Proverbs 27, 6. The idea of just keeping it real with each other. Keep secrets. You know, we linked with that is gossip. We've, you know, we forget that gossip is such an, is a sin in the Bible and we've overlooked it. You know, let's just forget gossip. And if you've been hurt by gossip, particularly in the church, and I was previously in another church, I just want to apologize on behalf of the church for that because that's not who we're meant to be. And in fact, actually, in terms of just relationships generally, if the church has hurt you, I will apologize on their behalf. But more importantly, Jesus is A, angry with what they did, but B, allow him to cover him with, your, with his love. And then keep forgiving in those friendships because those friendships get deeper and more profound as we forgive each other. And remember that even Judas was still loved. When he went and hung himself on that tree, he was still loved by Jesus. Um, and he even gave us an algorithm about forgiveness, you know, 70 by 7, which we know was just a metaphor, but we know it just meant just unlimited forgiveness for each other. And in those friendships, let's continue to serve each other. It says in John 13, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. It's, you know, we think of washing feet as something incredibly special. It wasn't. It was a very mundane thing. You came back from work or travels, the most junior staff would wash your feet. Okay? But what was special was you never got the master washing the servant's feet. Okay? And that is Jesus showing the deliberate, intentional act of service. And that's something that we can offer in any friendship, is to be able to serve each other. And I think a question to ask yourself in friendships is, what love language can I bring to this friendship? What can I, what more, there's some things we can bring to relationships and friendships, and there's some things we can't. And I think to ask ourselves these. And then in that whole thing is to encourage each other. It says in Proverbs 27, 9, perfume and incense bring joys to the heart, joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friends springs from his earnest counsel. And there's a wonderful acronym called THINK, which is, is when you're encouraging people, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Let's just use that sort, of, that sort of basis for when we interact with our friends. And then, of course, finally, the sacrificial side of laying down our lives for each other every day. And I was reading afresh as I was preparing this about the Cambridge Seven, who were this amazing group of Christians in the late 1800s. They were friends, seven of them. Um, in fact, bizarrely enough, one of my friends who became a Christian at university was the great-great-great-grandson of one of them, um, Bob Beecham. But there were these friends who came from incredibly privileged backgrounds in the UK, from wealth. They'd all been at Cambridge. One of them, C.T. Studd, was one of the best cricketer in Britain at the time. And then, meanwhile, in a parallel universe in China, there was a guy called... Um, come back to me, Harold Schofield, who was with the China Inland Mission. And he had been praying every day for God to send some people out to help him evangelize in China. And he was one of the first people there, so around the time of Hudson Taylor. And he was praying. These seven friends got convicted, and they all went out to China to serve, um, serve the Lord there. And that was a time when there was probably a handful of Chinese Christians. We now know that there's probably 120 million plus Chinese Christians who came out of that faithfulness of a group of friends of being obedient to Jesus and going out there. So I'd encourage them on that. As I come in just to land very, very shortly, I want to just use a sort of example of, it's a secular song, but... Um, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which you all know. Well, we don't. Some of the younger ones don't know it. Some of the older ones do know it. But a Bridge Over Troubled Water, written by Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, neither of whom were Christian. But Paul Simon said it was based on Jesus. The lyrics were based on Jesus. And when he started writing that song, and I won't sing it because I'll ruin it for those of you who know it. And, um, but when he started writing that song about um, a bridge of troubled water, he was talking about Jesus being a friend. Okay. And he wrote it, and then Art Garfunkel said, well, let me tweak it a little bit, and he added a little bit, and then the drummer added a little bit, then the producer added it, changed a little bit, and then the pianist added a bit and changed it. So it was this wonderful collaboration between friends 
to write this beautiful song on friendship. And I'll just read a few of the words out there for you because I think it really epitomizes what we as Christians are called to be in terms of friendship. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I'll dry them all. I'm on, the, I'm on your side. Oh, when times get rough and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. When you're down and out. Anyway, when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I'll comfort you. I'll take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around, like a bridge over troubled water. I will lay me down. Sail on, silver girl, sail on by. Your time has come to shine. All your dreams are on the way. See how they shine. I'm sailing right behind like a bridge over troubled water. I will ease your mind like a bridge over troubled water. And that's what Jesus taught us. And I would encourage us to be and model in church what friendship is about. And don't wait. Don't take time to develop those friendships. You know, we're living in such a time where there's so much brokenness and loneliness. Um, whether you're single or married, let's be proactive to go out and develop and invest in those friendships. So we've looked at what it means to be married, what singleness means, what celibacy means, what friendship which runs through all of those means. And just in conclusion, just to encourage us, you know, that singleness is a gift from God. Even more so is celibacy and marriage is a gift for God. And we are called to honor marriage, and we're called to honor singles, because both express God's heart. And whether you're married or whether you're single, we all belong to each other, yeah? particularly in community and as we do life together. And of course, you know, we don't know where things are going sometimes in those areas in marriage and singleness. And it talks about in John, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. And I want to end with this wonderful quote. Um, from Rabbi Abraham Tversky, because it's the idea of giving. Um, people make a mistake. You give to those you love. The true answer is you love those to whom you give. The point is, if I give you something, I have invested myself in you. Since self-love is a given, everybody loves themselves. Now that part of me has become in you, so there is part in you that I must love. True love is the love of giving, not a love of receiving. And so, let's be that community who love and serve each other as Christ showed us. And let's build those strong, healthy relationships. And right back to the beginning, remember the ultimate thing is our relationship with Him. And He calls us to pursue Him first, to put Him first. Before our marriage, before our singleness, before anything, we pursue Him first. And to seek His kingdom and to pursue Jesus with that passion. And as we focus on him as the author and perfecter of our faith, he will bring meaning and wholeness to our singleness or to our marriage. Amen.